This is Mostly Awesome, a podcast about the personal journeys of innovators and changemakers. We talk to the doers and thinkers of our time to understand what motivates them and why they do what they do. season is brought to you by your host Julia and Jacqueline and the entire CDTM podcast team in Munich. This week we are excited to welcome Ivar Panagel, head of strategy business development at Moz, founder of FemStory, business angel and personal inspiration to both of us. Eva studied at ESCP Business School and the Universidad Carlos III de Madrid. She held a variety of internships during her studies and ultimately joined McKinsey full-time when she graduated from her master's. During that time, Eva founded FemStory, a non-profit focused on connecting women to professional mentors. For the past two years, FemStory has empowered a variety of women to make impactful career moves. I'm personally happy to be part of the last FemStory batch and I'm already getting a lot of insights from my mentor and the network. After spending three years with McKinsey, Eva joined Moss, a fintech startup focused on smart corporate credit cards, digital invoice management, and automated accounting. Eva began in 2021 as chief of staff and was one of the first employees. Now there are 400 and she's transitioned to head of strategy. She focuses on roadmap planning, fundraising, internationalization, partnerships, sales operations, and public speaking and representation for Moss. Having so much on her plate, Eva still manages to be active as a business angel and to empower other women to become business angels themselves. Over the course of the episode, we speak to Eva about her early career trajectory, her experience at Moss, her experience with founding FemStory and angel investing. And finally, we ask her about work-life balance and managing multiple projects without burnout. Needless to say, Eva is a pro. The following episode is full of game-changing career and time management tips. As always, to finish out the podcast, we are also thrilled to add Eva's personal toolbox to our resources for the innovators of tomorrow. Welcome to the podcast. We're super excited to have you and ask you some questions about your personal career trajectory and your experience at Moss and time management. And to kick things off, just a starter question. Yulia and I noticed that you have quite the international study background. You studied entrepreneurship and innovation at the very international ESCP. And you also have a master's from Universidad Carlos III de Madrid. So what's your favorite city that you've studied in so far and why? I'm great to be here and thank you for the invitation. So the favorite city that I've studied in, my favorite city was definitely Madrid because the city is just amazing. I mean, it's much warmer, temperatures are much higher. Also the lifestyle of the people is great. They love hanging out in bars in the evening, going to cafes during the day and on the weekend. So I can everyone out there just recommend studying in Madrid. It's really amazing. <laughs> Great. Also, CDTM recently worked startup tour in Barcelona, and I also heard like similar things from people who studied in Barcelona, just because it's so much sun, so many happy people. But also, like during your studying, you held a variety of internships. For example, sales with Rolls Royce, business development with Procter and Gamble, also a fellow internship with McKinsey. Having such a bright experience, what advice would you give for students who are planning to do an internship currently? 
try as much as you can. I always say to my interns that you should really use the time before starting full-time to do different internships and to really try out everything. Yeah, it can be business, politics, something totally different, an NGO, whatever you like, because I always tell them, well, if you're always kind of like already working full-time, it's much more difficult actually to do an internship again, right? And so during the studies, during a master or bachelor, it's much easier to do, to trust really out what you want to do. So as I said, try everything out that you can. I think that's great advice. And also speaking of working full-time, when you graduated from your master's, you worked at McKinsey. What ultimately drew you to management consulting? And could you talk us through that process a little bit? Sure. So for me, the internship at McKinsey during my bachelor showed me already the big benefits of working in a big consulting firm. So I looked into different topics, different industries, different clients. The first advantage I see there. Then secondly, it's a great place to learn how to manage projects, solve problems, but also build yeah, communications, presentations for people that they hopefully understand also being very output oriented and obviously good time management because you have to work a lot, long times. So it's very important that you are an efficient worker. And last but not least, it showed me that I can get leadership experience there because at the big consulting firms, you have a very clear path on what is happening in the first years and what is your way to, to getting a team leader. And so this is the reason why I saw already during my internship, okay, this is a great place to work. I can get this experience. And it also convinced me afterwards to join full time. And I think another big part of that was definitely and most importantly, also working with super inspiring people. So already at the internship, but also afterwards, I never had the feeling that I'm the brightest person in the room. And that was really amazing for me. So I could learn from the other people. So yeah, long story short, I already got the experience during an internship, tried it out, tested for me that I liked it. And then after my master's, I also looked into other jobs, tried out startup and other stuff in internships, but then decided for myself that I want to go back to consulting, back to McKinsey and luckily did it. <laughs> I think what you normally hear about people who worked at big consulting firms is that they are very structured and that they are very efficient, as you said. How do you think has it impacted the way you work right now, this experience at, as working at McKinsey? So it definitely has impacted me a lot, I think, in a good way, but also sometimes in a bad way. So I think in a good way, it has taught me to work very outcome oriented and efficient. So when I approach something new, a new project at Moss, my current firm, I always ask myself, what do I want to get out of it? And this is something that I've learned a lot at McKinsey on the one hand. On the other hand, I structure bigger projects still to some extent like consulting projects. So clearly defining the goals, doing stakeholder management, doing a time plan and stuff like that. So I think this is something that you learn really very well in the big consulting firms. Yeah. So in that way, as you said, this has definitely taught me. But I think it was also on the other hand that I now do a few things very differently. So for example, now working in a startup, I obviously built only a few slides. I'm also being much more operational. And I think this is also something that 
is very different if you compare startup to consulting world. And yeah, sometimes let's say it like that in the beginning, I really had to learn that I have to be more operational, that it's less about building slides. And this was obviously also a learning process. Yeah. But that's why I said it also, yeah, has some, had some negative influences as well. Totally understand that. And also what you said about being goal oriented really resonates with me. But speaking of your experience with consulting versus the startup world, let's talk about your experience at Moss a little bit. So you're one of the first employees at Moss. Do you still remember why you decided to join such a young team back then? I always knew that after McKinsey, I wanted to do something in the tech or startup world. And when Ante, our CEO, approached me, I was super excited about the role and about the startup. But to be honest, I was especially excited and got convinced by three things. So firstly, the founders and their drive, their attitude. I joined the team very early on, but they've already hired a few great people, built a first MVP within a few months. And the attitude, as I said, that they had really convinced me that I said, I want to go with this team. Yeah. Secondly, I love the product. I love what we're doing at Moss. I mean, we are bringing cool finance products to SMBs and they really bring true value to them. So when I spoke to some customers and heard our customer feedback, this convinced me because I thought that we are bringing true value to them. And thirdly, it was definitely joining such an early stage company. I love building things from scratch, building ideas. And I was very excited about joining such a young startup and um, where there are so many possibilities. So this was the reason why I joined them. Yeah, I think it's in the end, it's all about the people, right? As you said, especially when you join such a young team. And I think it also has been quite a ride for you at most. I mean, you started as a chief of staff back then, and then you transitioned to head of strategy role. Do you still remember how this transition happened? And how did you understand in what area you want to develop yourself within most? I think also when you join such a young startup, I suppose you already have an idea of what you want to achieve or what you want this company to achieve with you in this role. So how, how did that transition happen? Yeah. Yeah. So from day one at Moss, there were two things that were always super important for me and that I told our CEO all the time. I said, firstly, I want to work on the most important topics for Moss that can bring 10 X to this company. Yeah. And secondly, I want to build a great team that supports me in achieving this mission. And this is also the reason why I transitioned after some time into the head of strategy role, because it was a perfect combination of both. Yeah. So in the beginning, I focused a lot on building new departments from scratch. I helped building sales operations, built the partnerships team, internationalization. So it was really about speedboating different departments and then handing them over to someone else, to a head of and hiring the team. Uh, but I also supported the strategy process, fundraising, growth opportunities. And I always have to say that my role also changed a lot over the last years, right? Because I started when we were just a view and then everybody has a lot of responsibility. And now that we are more than 400 employees, my role has also changed because now we are have much more support. We have much more employees. So now it's more about, as I said, strategy process and other things. But 
I always believe, especially in a startup, it's very important to go with the flow, also being dynamic, embracing the chains, and also being very flexible with roles because they can change very quickly, but you can also shape it. And that's also important to know. I think it's a very important aspect that you just mentioned in terms of scaling the company from zero to 400 employees, which happened in the course of two years at Moss. And I don't know whether you've heard of book Build by Tony Fidel. And I think in the book, he also mentions a very interesting transition of a company. If you scale from six employees to 20 employees, it's a huge leap in terms of culture, in terms of how you communicate with people, because you you cannot memorize all the names no more and you have to build yeah, another culture, another communication methods within the company. So I was just curious, have you experienced anything like that when you scaled your team within Moss? This is definitely two things that we've seen in our company. I mean, as you just said, communication, process, etc. change and you have to adapt and you have to adapt super quickly because you're growing at the same time. And I think this is the biggest hassle and also challenge, to be honest, because you're growing, growing, growing in terms of number of people, number of customers, number of contracts and stuff like that. You're growing, growing, growing. And on the other hand, underside, you need people supporting these processes, supporting the communication, stuff like that. And let's be honest, it's never really perfect. Yeah. And also when, when I reflect back on, on how we did it at Mossy and what have we seen, I would always say that there were three key elements that we brought to scale within two years to 400 employees. And the first one is definitely I always call it blueprints and processes. The second one is a players for a team so that you have a great team. And the third one is obviously money. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So drive that. And if we go a little bit deeper into it, so with blueprints and processes, I mean that let's say, for example, you're scaling the sales department, which is especially in like B2B direct sales scaling, super important, then it's very important that you have a blueprint on how to do outreach, how to do messaging and other things. Because in the beginning, you have maybe three people doing that and they can teach each other. But if you have 60 doing that, then you need something like a guide or something like that. So really a blueprint doing that, that they can learn from this and don't have to tell each other because this takes obviously forever. And this also includes onboarding. And the second one, as I said, processes also incorporate in that because if you're scaling so quickly, you need more and more processes. Example, hiring. If you hire two people, it's a very different story than if you hire 200 people. You need to have the right interview processes, the right interview scripts, the right scoring, etc. Because otherwise you end up with the wrong people, worst case, and need to let them go. And this is what you don't want to do. And this is why, firstly, blueprints and processes. Then secondly, you need a A player team of super driven and entrepreneurial people. So we always say it's a mix of young and more experienced people, because on the one hand, you want to have these young entrepreneurial people in there. But on the other hand, you also want to have people who have experience from the industry and bring it in there. So this is super important. Yeah. And obviously, as I said, third thing is money, because if you want to scale quickly like that, you also have a lot of costs. We venture back company and we took also money, obviously, to scale the company. Exactly. 
Yeah, I really appreciate you going so in depth on the scaling process. That was really informative for me. And I think what you said about the hiring process in particular really struck a chord and the difference between two and 200. But other than scaling, I imagine that the last two years at Moss have been quite a ride. What have been the most exciting and most challenging aspects of the last two years for you with Moss? Wow, there were so many. Let's maybe start with the exciting ones. So I think the exciting aspects were obviously when we reached certain, I would call them like thresholds. So when we had at some point more than 1000 customers, more than 2000 customers. So if you really kind of like have these numbers and you say, bam, now we are doing this amount of ARR. So these are from a business perspective, really exciting aspects but on the other side it's also exciting if you see the team growing see when there are new people new starters who drive new projects who really bring i call it always the magic to moss so this is also great to see how how people grow in the company so there are many exciting aspects and the challenging ones i mean there are also many i think the most challenging times for us were when approximately around 50 people per month started so when a lot of people joined very quickly the company and let's be honest our process weren't always 100 ready for it so the time when you realize this is often too late and then you catch up and you catch up this is i think were the biggest challenges for us i mean we always kind of like then refigured, reshuffled and stuff like that. I think that in terms of scaling, there were many things that also didn't go as we as we thought, but then we fixed it. And I think this is also the magic of a startup, to be honest. Yeah, I think it's also like the beautiful and horrifying part of it that you are doing it for the first time and inevitably you make mistakes. And also you've mentioned like taking VC money, which is also like a very natural thing for a startup to do. I think as many other startups, Moss has been affected by the recent recession in the market, what we experience, especially during this summer. And as someone who is responsible for strategy at a young startup, did you also have to decide between growth at all cost and efficiency? So the recent market developments have definitely impacted us as Moss as a company and our strategy. First highlighting us as Moss. Yes, probably some of you have seen, we unfortunately had to let go part of our workforce because of the fact that the recession hit us. And we also don't know how long this recession will still be there. So we had to take this very hard decision for us. We didn't want to do it, obviously. And we had a lot of discussions. It took us a long time to take the decision, but at some point we decided to do this. So as a small, this has definitely impacted us. And also from a strategy perspective, I mean, last year we've mostly focused on growth, hired additional people. It was really about, okay, where do we want to go next? What will be the next country that we're expanding into? What are the new products that we want to build? And this is also the reason why we've hired and hired. And, and then honestly, from one day to the other, it was like, okay, but now we're looking into profitability and now we're looking into the numbers and times have changed a lot. So yes, I would definitely say also our current way of working has 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 changed a lot and i mean luckily we see still customer growth and also our tool is helping our customers save money so this can help them in terms of crisis 
but still obviously we are affected by the recession. Yeah, I appreciate you opening up about that sort of more challenging topic. And obviously no one can see into the future, but if you had to take a guess, how do you think the trend of capital efficiency and conservative VC valuations will persist? Difficult to say, but honestly, I believe that we'll see this trend at least ongoing for the next months, when even not more than a year, because we have this overall uncertainty at the, uncertainty at the markets. So this trickles down, right, from the markets to the valuations to the startups, etc. So I believe that we will that we will probably still see this for some time. However, I also always say that we have to take into consideration that we've come from a year of extremely high VC activity, high valuations, etc. So I guess also afterwards we'll end up somewhere in between. And at this point, I also always say that, yes, it's true that VCs are conservative, but I truly still believe that good ideas will get funding. And I hope that not super excited founders out there will now get demotivated because always think about that great companies like Airbnb, etc. have been founded in terms of crisis. So this shouldn't stop anyone out there doing it. I also heard from investors that the race for for good companies is even more competitive right now in the current market situation. So, yeah, I agree on that. And also to change the topic a bit, I think that many people know you not only as a head of strategy at most, but also as a mentor and founder of FemStory and me, myself included, to be honest, because I'm also part of FemStory of the last batch and also as a small anecdote of how I heard about the program. So it was also thanks to CDTM, to be honest, because it was Julia Stadler who participated in our trend seminar one time. And that's how I learned about FemStory that she also founded together with you. And yeah, I just wanted to take a chance and ask you about how you came up with the idea of FemStory. First, great that you're part of our program and <laughs> that you heard that way of us. So I had the idea of FemStory when I was back at, C at McKinsey and was honestly very frustrated about the low share of female leadership that I experienced there. I mean, I also have to say that I was part of the digital McKinsey part. So I worked on tech projects, big tech projects, and there usually the share of, of females is anywhere a little bit lower. But I was really frustrated and I thought, hey, what can I do to make change happen? And back then at McKinsey, we had a mentoring program from women for women. And I thought, why not replicating this to other women outside McKinsey? Because it's actually not fair that maybe someone from outside doesn't have it. For everyone also who doesn't know FemStory, we are offering mentoring programs for women for months. And I wrote down the concept, discussed the idea with a few friends, built the website, honestly. And then I just asked some friends, also Julia, to support me. And yeah, FemStory was born. I think that's a great story, particularly about finding inspiration just kind of around you in whatever environment you're in. And speaking of rapidly changing environments, I noticed that you founded FemStory in April 2020, so right as the pandemic was beginning to hit. Would you say that the pandemic impacted your vision for FemStory at all? And if so, how did it shape things? To be honest, we rather benefited from the pandemic because our program is fully online on the one hand. So 
we could do it still online and I think due to the fact that a lot of people were at home it was cool for them to join the program say hey I want to be part of this because I'm now at home and can do it online it's the first part and the second part is that I mean we are doing mentoring so we help each other and we heard from a lot of women also back then they said hey I'm in a difficult time I'm worried about my job or I got laid off or something like that and we we felt really good that we could offer them mentoring that we could help them so this was also one of the things why even though yeah pandemic had hard of us I think that from Sam story wise we could also really help the women during that time Great. And I also uh, wanted to ask you, so you've mentioned like the mentoring program that you have at McKinsey, for example, and you also wanted to offer it to other women outside of outside of McKinsey. And just maybe a very general and maybe also stupid question, but still, why do you think is mentoring important, especially mentoring for women? Yes. So at first there are no stupid questions. <laughs> and then, so why is mentoring important? So firstly, women often, unfortunately, underestimate themselves. And I think they, they just need this extra, you can do it. Yeah. Someone telling them, you have your plan, you have no idea, you can do it. Yeah. So this encouragement is something that comes a lot from mentoring. That's the first reason. And the second one is I also definitely see that women unfortunately have less role models they can look up to. So with our mentorship programs and over with mentoring overall, they get more role models. And the third one is that having a mentor is also some kind of an additional network you get. So I truly believe that If you're in this mentor-mentee relationships or in a sponsor-sponsee relationship, which is often related, this person will go the extra mile for you. Yeah, This person will try to make something work for you even more than somebody else. And this is the reason why I think especially for women who are still unfortunately underrepresented in leadership roles, entrepreneurship, etc., it's important that we help them even more. Yeah, and I think your passion for mentoring and the vision of FemStory really shines through. And an interesting point of FemStory is that it remains a nonprofit project. So given that it's a nonprofit, how do you maintain that model, stay motivated, and also prioritize FemStory among your many other projects? Wow, that's a good question. Wow, good. So maybe one after the other. So. It's true that FemStory is still a non-profit model. We have chosen this due to several factors. So firstly, we love to be independent, to be honest, because if we would now have contracts with companies for sponsoring or something like that, or even workshop or something like that, we would be to some extent dependent on them. And we always said that we love doing it as we like doing it because we are independent. Yeah? And secondly, For now, we have really a great team yeah, that supports us. So on the one hand, obviously, my great co-founders, Julia, Cecilia, and also secondly, we have mentees from our community who support us. So this makes things, to be honest, a little bit easier that we can still do it non-profit, to be honest. But it's 
also again and again a challenge to be full and transparent here but so far we would like to keep it like that and regarding your other questions how to stay motivated and also how to prioritize film story to staying motivated i think is easy because it's really really cool we get a really a lot of great feedback and that keeps me running right so if you get messages on slack from women telling you oh thank you i've just did this big career step i just i don't know renegotiate a salary with my boss due to what what your mentor told me and this is very really motivating and this keeps me really running and how do i do the priorization Honestly, in the end, it's a lot of discipline, time management and work on the weekend that I do. But as I said, for me, it's, it's, I love the project. I love, I love it. So it's not work for me itself. It's doing something I really like. I think I won't be wrong if I say that your mission at FM Story is to empower women and their careers, also in their personal lives, maybe also to help them to have maybe uh, more courage in the end. And I also like in this regard, I see FM Story connected to another passion of yours, which is angel investment. And I think as we talked in b before making this recording, you also told me that it's crazy how few female investors we have and i just wanted to ask you first of all how did you get involved in the angel investment given that you also had maybe not that many role models when you started yeah so for me i was over and over approached by founders asking me to invest so in the beginning i often said no or sorry i don't have the time to look deeper into it But at some point I thought, okay, why not doing more of it? Yeah. And so I dived deeper into the topic, talked to different founders, talked also to friends who work in VC about angel investing and started my first investments. But I also honestly took time to educate myself on it and to also do you do good due diligences to invest in the teams where I truly believe in. This is how I got into, into it. And now, honestly, I just love working with young founders. I love helping them to make the idea happen, sharing my insights from two years of learnings at Moss. And this is really amazing for both sides. And this is also why I said in the beginning, I always do a good DD on the teams. Also, I only invest into topics where I myself truly believe that I can make an impact and help the founders. So it's not only about the money why I invest, but it's much more about, I want to have this relationship with the founders where I can help them, where I can bring true value for them. And this is also one of the things where I look deeper into when I invest. Yeah, absolutely. I appreciate you laying that out so clearly. And just to put a number on what Yulia mentioned earlier about the shortage of women as angel investors, according to the European Business Angel Network, Only 11% of investors are women within Europe, whereas in the US, I believe the number is actually around 20%. Why do you think this is the case and what can we do to change it? Obviously, ideally both numbers to increase, but just even to close the gap. Maybe we talk first about the difference and then why it's so low, right? So, I mean, let's be honest. 11 or 12 at 20% both is too low. Yeah, we think we don't have to discuss about this. Why do I think that 
it's even lower in in Europe versus the US. So on the one hand, we have less female entrepreneurs and female operators in senior positions in Europe versus the US. And what you can see in angel investing is that often ex-founders, ex-operators turn into angels when they do a big exit. This is the first reason. And the second reason is that it's just a matter of fact that our whole startup ecosystem is behind the US. So I believe that we'll also catch up to some extent, hopefully, yeah, hopefully in the next years, because our ecosystem evolve, yeah, evolves. So this is the answer to the question you versus the US. But why is it overall that low? I think, honestly, this is just so frustrating and makes me also really angry. I also often get the reaction in the calls that founders tell me, oh, you're the first female angel investor that we're talking to. And I think this is just absolutely unacceptable. And I see a few reasons in there. So as I said, often business angels are ex-founders and senior operators. And due to the fact that, yeah, we don't have that many female entrepreneurs and also senior operators, this is difficult. Then secondly, there are not enough role models. So angel investor role models out there showing the way and also thirdly networks. Yeah, sorry, but this is a, this is a group of white male WhatsApp groups. Yeah. And they send each other the deals. This is how it works. Yeah. I sent my best buddy from university. I sent him my deal. Yeah. And as long as we don't break this, this will not change. Yeah. And this is also the reason why I have the feeling that a lot of women, they don't have the idea to invest because they have female friends don't do it. Yeah. And for male or like male founders or also male operators, it's just different. I mean, if your friend already invests in something, then it's much more likely that you listen to him and say, ah, okay, yeah, I'm going to do it as well. Yeah. So we definitely have a network effect there. And so what do we need to do? I mean, firstly, to solve the problem from the ground, we need more women founding companies, more women in startups. Yeah. So to every woman out there, go into a great startup or found it yourself and then get a business angel. Yeah. If you have more questions on that, ask me later on. So this is the first thing to do. And then the second thing to do is creating a network, building your network. So women need to get into these good deal flows. Yeah. As I said, getting into the WhatsApp groups, creating their own WhatsApp groups, sending deals to each other and connect each other. And thirdly, more role modeling. So showing other how it works proactively. If you're doing angel investments, go to other women and say, Hey, you haven't done an angel investment yet. No worries. I will teach you how to do it. And you can ask me all the questions that you want. And so it's also a lot of educating each other. Yeah. These are just some of the things that we should definitely do to change this. I think it's actually a good illustration of Catch-22, what you described, just because, for example, male friends communicating on WhatsApp and sharing deals. It's also something that we discussed recently within our CDTM class and what we also observed, to be honest, because it's, it's quite funny, just because we have some male friends who want to spend time on a weekend together, for example, and they go to drink some beer. And of course, they discuss also some business related stuff. And 
for some reasons, women or just girls from our class are not that often invited to that kind of parties just because it's seen as a male activity. And that's how, like, in the end, you build up your network, also your, like, professional network. And maybe in a few years, these are the people with whom you share your deals if you're going to step into the business angel investing. So I definitely see your point. And maybe you're right that we women also should create our own WhatsApp groups. <laughs> exactly. Great. And also maybe one more question on that. So when you started dealing with angel investing, did you have to fight with any stereotypes or you, you had a feeling that people don't take you seriously because, oh, she's a woman who wants to do business angel investing or it wasn't the case? To be honest, this wasn't so much the case. It was rather the opposite that people were very happy talking to me, as I mentioned before, because... I see more and more founders who want to have a female business angel in their cap table. Yeah, because let's be honest, if you're a small company and you're hiring people, then you also want to have a diverse cap table. Yeah. And so I have the feeling that it was rather that people reached out and said, hey, I, I want to talk to you and can you introduce me to your other five female angel investors that you know? So I think this is a big pull also from the market asking for that, not only because of the diversity factor itself, but also because founders truly believe that having this diverse mindset will help them doing better decisions, getting better insights, helping them in hiring and stuff like that. So I have seen more even a pull from the market, but in terms of what was maybe difficult and what was the challenges, I think for me, as I mentioned before, as not many of my female best friends invest, I kind of like talked to a lot of people at first to understand the process and it was not like ah, my best buddy is investing anyway so I will just get with him for a go with him for a beer and figure out <laughs> so I think this at first understanding to how the process works was important for me and then obviously getting into the best best deals was the second step afterwards yeah and I guess just sort of to wrap up the discussion of both angel investing and femme story we've talked a lot of a We've talked a lot about role models and representation. And when people talk about representation, there's a common phrase that I've heard a lot, which is that if you can see it, you can be it. Do you agree with that phrase? Do you disagree? What are your thoughts? I agree 100%. I mean, this is basically a lot of stuff what I'm doing, right? I, I truly believe that when you see someone doing it who is similar to you in a way you much more believe that you can do it you're much less afraid and you also are less afraid to ask this person hey how did you do it and learn from it yeah so i can also relate it for myself if i see other great operators other great female founders i dare I much more think I can go the same way. I can do this because she did it. Yeah. Unfortunately, we just don't have enough of them. So we should have more. But yeah, in general, I truly believe and agree with this phrase. Yeah. So also in the course of our episodes, we talked a lot of about your project. So you had a strategy at Moss. You also are active as a business angel investor. You're also active as a co-founder of Fem Story, And I think the logical question would be, like, 
how do you manage all of that? Maybe you have some go-to time management tools that you want to share with us for us to be as productive as you are. Please share with us. <laughs> okay, at first you need to know that I'm a total freak and nerd about time management. So I also love to optimize things there. So what I can always recommend and how I do it is at first for my daily tasks at work but also besides that i always use the two tools notion and google calendar so i track all my tasks in notion i have a sophisticated system with different columns so to do something that i do later something that i do on the weekend so i clearly put my tasks into different statuses and then i block time in my calendar on when i do what so every sunday evening i sit down and i plan basically my whole week including sport and other stuff that i have i know okay when it's gonna happen when it doesn't mean that my every minute yeah is scheduled but i put everything in there also side projects and stuff like that that i at least have it in my mind what do i do when and i can still then reschedule it but it gives me already a good feeling on what do i want to want to achieve this week and also much more important i always believe what can i not achieve this week mm -hmm. because if you don't do good time management one of the things that also happens is that maybe after a week you're frustrated with yourself because you haven't achieved as much as you liked but it was also because of the fact that you maybe planned much more than you could have achieved anyways yeah so this these are two of the tools that i really love and i can everyone out there recommend a book on that getting things done it's also a great book on time management on how to prioritize tasks very quickly how to yeah i love for example the the idea of saying if i can answer an email in two minutes i do it otherwise i park it for later and stuff like that so there are many things that you can take out from the book to plan your time much more efficiently Just out of curiosity, does it freak you out when something goes not according to your plan that you planned on Sunday evening? So usually it doesn't freak me out because with my job, a lot of things change during the day. So it's not like what I plan on Sunday evening is going to stick for the whole week. But what usually happens is that every evening I reschedule again or reprioritize because Maybe things have changed during the day and then I, as I said, reschedule. So I've also learned to be flexible and I don't luckily freak out because otherwise I would probably freak out a lot, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> that makes sense to me. And it's good to hear that you sort of stay flexible because I could imagine I at least would get way too wrapped up in the minute details. But speaking of planning things ahead on Sundays, You obviously have a very rigorous time management system and it sounds necessary given that you work on so many different things. How has your perspective on managing multiple projects evolved over the years and do you believe in multitasking? In general, I don't really believe in multitasking itself. So multitasking as doing several things at the same time. I don't think that works, yeah? I mean, everybody who was in a Zoom call, listening to someone else trying to answer an email at the same time, sorry, but you cannot tell me that this is really efficient, yeah? And that it really works out. I mean, usually your brain and their 
very sophisticated studies on this, your brain can only do one thing. It can either listen to the Zoom session or it can look at your email. Yeah? So in general, I don't believe in multitasking and stuff like that. But what I believe in is that, as I said, with good project management, you can do several things in a week, even projects that are not related to each other. Yeah? But what I always say, it's very important to focus on rather a few projects, do them very well, then doing many projects, not very well. Yeah? Because then you're never really happy with your results. And this is also sometimes that I all something that I always tell my teams. I say rather do two projects very well than five projects in the longer time not very well. And this is also the reason why when I, for example, sit down on Sundays, I literally kick out stuff from my calendar, or from my project list and say, I'm sorry, I don't have the time this week. I do it next week. If it's super urgent, let me know. But otherwise, we have to wait another week. I think it's a very, very smart approach and I think I definitely also need to try it out. But speaking about more serious problems and if we may ask you, have you ever experienced burnout and if so, how did you overcome it and what advice would you have for our listeners and also for us, for Jacqueline and I, for people who are managing busy schedules? So fortunately, I have not experienced a burnout per se so far, but I've definitely experienced many times of crazy stress. So working either under very, very high pressure over weeks or working from 8 a.m. in the morning until 1 a.m. at night over weeks, which is really exhausting. And yeah, I also cannot recommend it, but it's yeah, really getting you frustrated and very slow and unhappy so i've definitely experienced this times and also have found ways to on the one hand prevent this i would say and on the other hand to see it coming when it will happen soonish to react quickly and i i have a few tips that i can i can just share i think in general everyone should define for her himself what helps best. This is very individual. But what I do starting in the morning, I have a morning routine where I always do an hour of sport. And this is something where I really calm down either during spinning, I have a pellet and I love it, or I do strength classes, or I do a workout with friends outside, or I do yoga. So this is really something to, to not have your brain busy 24-7. So I think sport is a great trick. Secondly, please block time for lunch. And I mean real lunch, yeah? Not lunch in front of your laptop. This does not work. I mean, people who tell me that they eat in front of their laptop, I say this is not good, yeah? Rather let your brain rest in the time for an hour because you will be much more efficient afterwards. And a few other tricks are to put in, in working pauses to focus in the calendar. I also, for example, track my sleep. So I know when I had a very bad night and then I think about, okay, what has happened? What do I need to change? I also would not recommend to work in front of the computer until 8 p.m. or 9 p.m. or later. Otherwise, it's very difficult to fall asleep. So yeah, stuff like that. As I said, it's very individual, but it's important to, I always say, to prevent 
and not always act when it's too late because it's much more difficult to get from this exhaustion status backwards than preventing it. And if it gets more stressful, do even more. This helps a lot more. Yeah, I think those are all really great tips. And speaking of acting preventatively and taking a break, when was the last time you took a vacation and where was the vacation? Ah, okay, <laughs> vacation. Let me check. So my last vacation was ah, actually not that long ago. I was in Italy and Austria for hiking and relaxing in August with my husband for two weeks. And it was very wonderful, very exciting. And now that when I think back of it, I should definitely do a holiday soonish again. I hope the memory of this vacation warms you up during this October days. And I was very, very informative and I would say a really inspiring talk. So I, I think Jacqueline and I are really inspired by, and, uh, by what you said and also all the tips regarding prioritization, time management and so on. And as you know, in the end of our episodes with our guests, we always want to finish up with a small toolbox. What is a book you think everyone should read? No Rules Rules from Reed Hastings, the Netflix CEO and co-founder. It's an amazing book about how to build a great culture and a great team in your company. Already on my list. What is the app that everyone should download? Auto Sleep. It's a great app to track your sleep and gives you insights into the different sleeping zones and what to improve. Great. Yeah, right after this, I'm going to my app store and downloading that because that sounds really helpful. And I was wondering what tool you used. But what is a podcast that you love listening to? I love the podcast Fast and Curious from Verena Pausa and Leah Sophie Kramer because it's a great female podcast, a lot about business stuff, but also other topics. And yeah, here also empowering women again. I think it's definitely a podcast everyone should listen to. Great. You already mentioned your morning routine with one hour of sports, but what other routine do you follow? So I have a routine in the evening that before I go to bed, I do 15 minutes of meditation and then I have a five minutes journal where I just write down things about my day. It really helps me to calm down. Exactly. Great. And finally, who is an innovator everyone should know? Coming from the fintech world, I definitely <laughs> highlight a great fintech person here. So there's Christina Junguera. I hope I spell it correctly. She's the co-founder of New Bank, which is now one of the biggest banks in the world. And I think what she has achieved there in the last years is truly amazing. Thank you so much, Eva. It was really inspiring. And I think Jacqueline and I enjoyed this conversation a lot and hopefully our listeners as well. Thank you for that. Thank you for the invitation and it was great being here. The Mostly Awesome podcast is brought to you by CDTM, the Center for Digital Technology and Management. This episode is a product of great teamwork together with Annabelle Schaefer, Chris Schnabel, Yulia Kosovskaya, and Jacqueline Hoffsmith. If you like our podcast and would like to support our work, please rate us on the platform you're listening on.
and tell your friends about Mostly Awesome. Our inbox, podcast at cdtm.de, is always open for your feedback or any warm intros. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you next week.